We are privileged today to have a few special guests with us. They are the Andrew Murray Pilgrims, all the way from South Africa in a town called Wellington. Now, I need to um, assure you, they didn't walk all the way, but they are going to do a fair amount of walking while they are here. And um, these people are here for a very specific reason, and it is to give thanks to Andrew Murray. The Murrays had a major impact on society and life in South Africa, and especially Andrew Murray, starting many different educational centers. And he did a lot for education for, for women and young ladies um, in particular. He wrote more than 250 books and tracks, and we explored a bit about Andrew of Andrew Murray yesterday at our half-day conference for church leaders that Alna and Letty um, led for us. And um, they've joined up with us just to say thanks for this rich legacy that this Scotsman left behind in South Africa. And I almost want to argue, I don't know if we would have been where we are. I don't know if I would have been back here in Scotland as a minister if it wasn't for someone like Andrew Murray and the sacrifices he made in obedience. So this pilgrimage is about gratitude and thankfulness for his obedience and sacrifice him along with so many other Scottish missionaries over the years. Good morning, dear friends, dear family of the Kirkliston Parish Church. Allow me a moment to thank you for the love and the warmth that we are experiencing amongst you. Welcoming us into your homes, into your hearts, receiving us, hosting yesterday's conference, and for the privilege of worshipping with you this morning. We experience a deep connection with you from the start, through our shared stories, through the exchange of missionaries to South Africa since 1821, Scottish missionaries, and more recently, South African ministers to Scotland. May the journey, may the pilgrimage, may the mutual friendship continue. Shall we pray? Eternal and gracious God, You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies, of anything that threatens or inhibits the life in abundance you intended for me. You anoint my head with oil. You welcome me unconditionally as a guest of honor. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. You guide me in circles of righteousness for your name's sake. You make me lie down in green pastures. You lead me beside quiet waters. 
you restore my soul. You are my shepherd, my host. I shall not be in want. You are our shepherd, our host. We shall not be in want. Dear sisters and brothers, the creator of the universe, the God of Israel and Jesus of Nazareth, is for you. Jesus Christ, the resurrected Lord, is with you. The life-giving Spirit of God is in you. Amen. Dear sisters and brothers, since it's about covenanting this morning, about a treaty between Kirk Liston and Wellington, between Scotland and South Africa, about a covenant God taking us on a pilgrimage through life, recalling and celebrating God's goodness and love. I would like to dwell with you this morning on the art of remembering. And by implication, the art of forgetting. One of the greatest gifts God has given humankind is the gift of memory. The grace to remember of being reminded. Us being together on the first Sunday after Easter is a significant reminder of the God to whom we belong and of who we are. In the worshiping, we are reminded of how God's presence and absence have been experienced in many places and diverse circumstances through the ages, also in Scotland and in South Africa. In the Bible, memory plays an important part in the lives of faith communities, particularly in times of crisis. An example is the account of the Babylonian exile in the 6th century before the current era when Israel suffered great loss, abandonment, and loneliness. The greatest crisis was that it seemed that God has turned God's back on them. Under those circumstances, the author of Lamentations experiences an enlightening moment when he recalls how in the past the faithful God of the covenant protected and nurtured them, and he witnesses to it by writing, God's mercies are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness, 
the ability to tell stories, to describe reality, is a huge privilege entrusted to us. Yet, perhaps even more remarkable is the ability of the human imagination to re-describe, to re-describe reality, to rename our experiences, to retell our stories from different angles and perspectives. We can recreate meaning by finding new and healing connections between past, present, and future. And that's what pilgrimage is about. That's what we are here for. Implementing this means we learn to see differently. In the New Testament, there are many examples where God's presence in Jesus of Nazareth Nazareth surprised and shocked people. He challenged them to look differently. In Jesus, we find God's presence where people not necessarily expected God. We find him amongst tax collectors and prostitutes, Samaritans and Syrophoenicians, among little children and lepers, among criminals on Golgotha. Through faith in this Jesus, John sees the Lamb on the throne of heaven amidst the anxiety and affliction of first century Roman Empire. One of the most captivating stories in the Gospels is of Simon Peter, whose broken life is dramatically restored when he meets the resurrected Jesus. One should follow Peter's story from the moment his brother Andrew introduces him to Jesus, to his speech on the day of Pentecost and further. Let's focus this morning and listen how uniquely the author of the fourth gospel remembers and retells Peter's story from Jesus' trial in the courtyard of the high priest. I'm going to invite Letty to read from John 18. Please note the settings of place, time, and people. We will read from John 18, from verse 15. Simon Peter and another disciple were following Jesus. Because this disciple was known to the high priest, he went with Jesus into the high priest's courtyard. But Peter had to wait outside at the door. The other disciple, who was known to the high priest, came back spoke to the servant girl on duty there, and brought Peter in. You aren't one of this man's disciples too, are you? She asked Peter. He replied, I am not. It was cold, and the servants and officials stood around a fire they had made to keep them warm. Peter also was standing with them, 
warming himself. Then we'll go to verse 25. Meanwhile, Simon Peter was still standing there warming himself. So they asked him, You aren't one of his disciples too, are you? He denied it, saying, I am not. One of the high priest's servants, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, challenged him. Didn't I see you with him in the garden? Again, Peter denied it. And at that moment, a rooster began to grow. Let's take a moment to imagine the emotion surrounding that fire. Peter leaving. Matthew describes him as weeping bitterly. And we imagine the fear Embarrassment, shock, disappointment, devastation. Then the trial continues. Jesus is executed, risen from the dead, and Peter is just nowhere. Then Jesus meets with his disciples several times. In John 21, we read how Jesus prepares a table and meet with them again. I'm going to invite Ilna to read that part of the story for us from John 21. Note once again the settings of place, time, and people. John 21. Afterwards, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, also known as Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedeus, and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them, and they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat. But that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize it was Jesus. He called out to them, Friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, Throw your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. When they did it, they were unable to haul the net because of the large number of fish. Then the disciples the, the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It is the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, It is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him, for he had taken it off, and he jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from shore, about a hundred meters. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish that you have just bought. So Simon Peter climbed back into the boat and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153. But even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, 
Who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, he took the bread and gave it to them, and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. We imagine those emotions of speechless amazement and awe mixed with doubt. Just for a moment, think of the similarities between these scenes. The first one, the setting of place around a coal fire. The second one, around a coal fire on the beach. And it's interesting that these two places are the only places in the entire New Testament where we find the Greek word anthrakia for a coal fire. No coincidence. Look at the settings of time between these scenes. The first one, early in the morning when cocks crow. The second one, early in the morning when fish bite. Look at the similarities of people. The first scene, Jesus, Peter, another disciple, slaves, Roman soldiers. The second one, Jesus, Peter, other disciples. What is this mysterious, intimate, deeply personal moment next to a charcoal fire on the beach of the Sea of Tiberias? Jesus takes initiative in recasting the chaotic situation of his trial into a life-giving moment. By inviting his disciples to share a meal with him, Jesus guides them towards recognizing him as the resurrected Lord. In this profound moment of reconnection, Peter is given the opportunity to, to turn away from a history of misunderstanding and alienation. He is offered a radically new past and future. He receives a new identity, a new calling, even to the point where Jesus re-entrusts his flock to him, if you read the rest of John 21. Dear friends, this morning, many centuries later, in new times and under totally different circumstances, Peter's story reminds us of a gracious God who liberates and heals by making us to remember that any moment with God can be a new beginning. Because it was impossible for him to be held even in the power of death, it is possible for us to be raised with him, to be freed from anything that threatens the quality of our lives. Peter's story reminds us of a wondrous God who appears and reveals God's self to people in surprising ways and in unexpected places. Jesus is born in a place where no child was meant to be born. Jesus dies at the place where criminals were executed. 
in John 21, Jesus appears unexpectedly on the beach amid their everyday routine. The disciples did not recognize him, probably because they did not expect him there. Peter's restoration was clearly a change from the roots, a change of mind and heart and spirit that would give him the courage to accept God's grace and to fulfill the new mission he has, had been called to through the day of Pentecost and into the house of the Roman captain Cornelius. Peter's story reminds us that faith is about choices. We can choose the lens through which we look at our own stories or that of the church or our countries, either through God's healing love in Christ or through the devastating judgment and biases of our own hearts. The story of Peter's renewal reminds me of the Sabbath, the heart of the life of God's people in the Old Testament, that reminded them of their freedom from slavery in Egypt, and that was meant to call them to social and economic justice, to peace for all, women, slaves, children, foreigners, animals, and plants. God's Sabbath rest, Jesus' resurrection power in New Testament terms, was meant to open new possibilities for all, to set our spirit and bodies free, to rename our memories and stories in the light of God's radical story in Jesus Christ. Peter's story reminds me of the incredibly large potential of the church. The church as God's healing presence in the world. Those assigned with authority to take care of God's flock of non-human beings and the earth. Sisters and brothers, do we still believe that this is possible? In Jesus of Nazareth, God turns the ordinary lives of people like you and me upside down. If we read in John 20, 30 and 31, what the purpose of John's gospel is, we read, Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written for two reasons. One, that you may believe, that you may continue to believe, or that you may believe for the first time that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And secondly, that by believing, you may have life in his name. Jesus did many other signs, but these, also Peter's story, are written so that you and I may believe that Jesus is the Christ, and that through believing, we 
may have life and be life-giving signs in the world. In closing, let's allow a very intimate and personal moment between you and God. In closing, let's light our own charcoal fires and imagine Jesus inviting us to breakfast this morning. I'm going to light the first candle, the one associated with emotions of loss, alienation, devastation, despair. Shall we pray? Holy and gracious God, we are overwhelmed by the power of your resurrection, the healing power of your love. We bring to you all the coal fires of our destructive memories. We deeply lament the wounds the scars and sorrow that we have caused in one another's lives. We come to you confessing the fears that twist our lives and keep us from the inner calm and peace that comes from you. Also our fear of not being ready when opportunities present themselves for service. Like Peter, we find ourselves hesitating to follow you and fearing that the cost may be too great. Give us the strength and peace that only you can give, together with the courage and boldness to act. We remember and bring before you the homes, neighborhoods, and countries we represent. We see the devastation caused by the ways in which the world's economy is arranged. Lord, have mercy on us. Kiri Ileizo. Let's move to the second coal fire, fire associated with emotions of compassion, healing, welcoming love. Shall we pray? Eternal and gracious God, thank you. Thank you for your everlasting love, which is the strongest healing power in the world. Thank you that we may hold on to your promise that you are with us, taking care of us, freeing us from life-threatening memories and habits, restoring our humanity in Christ Jesus. Thank you for covenanting anew with us this morning, as you did with Peter that morning on the beach. For thine is the kingdom and the power forever. Amen. Dear sisters and brothers, we have been reminded 
by the God who invites us into God's healing presence and from there sends us into the world. It is now my privilege to remind you of this God who is with you in the new week, to bless you and surprise you with new energy and hope. Now to God, who by the resurrection power at work within us is able to accomplish abundantly far more than all we can ask or imagine. To God be glory in Christ Jesus and in the church throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen.